Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about our production quality. As my most devoted listeners know, fine-tuning the quality of each episode has been a process for us. Um, some episodes are pristine, while others might have their marks of imperfection. But luckily, we are finally starting to hit our groove. The thing is, um, I can't sustain the groove on my own. This is where you come in. The first and best way that you can all support the podcast is by listening. Without your listens, there is no Alien Chronicles. But the second best way that you can support us is by donating. Whether your donation is the size of a latte or a new pair of shoes or more, it'll go a long way towards ensuring that the production quality of our podcast is just as good as our content. You can find the link to donate in the description. Thanks for listening. And now on to my interview with Malika Gharib. You come to America, you can be whoever you want, you can do whatever you want. You're told that, but you, I didn't believe and understand the power of those words until I truly went through the process of feeling like those words meant something to me. I first heard about her book on NPR and I knew I had to interview her. Her story is reflective of the struggles kids of immigrants have to go through to carve their space in American society. Malika Gharib is a journalist at National Public Radio, NPR. She reports on topics such as the humanitarian aid sector, gender equality and innovation in developing world. She's also the founder of the Runcible Spoon Food Zine and she has written a graphic memoir, I Was There American Dream, about family, identity and fitting in as a Filipino-Egyptian-American kid of immigrants. Welcome, Malika. So good to have you on my show. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So you grew up in a biracial household. As I was, you know, prepping for this interview and reading articles about you and your interviews, it seems to me that you associate yourself equally with all layers of your racial and cultural identity. How has that shaped your outlook on life? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what is great about holding many different identities together and also spending time in the Middle East where my father lived in um, Qatar and Egypt. So whenever I visited him, I was fully immersed in those cultures when I visited. So having a foot in the Middle East and also a foot in the U.S. and then also a foot in the world of the Filipino-American community in, the, in, in Los Angeles, I felt like I understood the importance of culture in a person's life and how much your identity can can be shaped by your culture and how in America we are shown that or or told that race doesn't matter in quotes and like you know you're American like one of us but these are very powerful traditions and values that have been taught to us and passed down to us by our parents and they mean something to us. And it would be a mistake to look at a person and not recognize and value those parts too. So whenever I met another person of color, being a person of color myself, being a first generation American, holding many cultures together, I was interested in hearing that part of my friend's identity. 
I wanted to explore and unpack that. I wanted to see how that shaped their own worldviews because because it shaped mine. So I think it in in short it makes it made me a lot more sensitive to uh, and appreciative of culture. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about the American dream and and I want to talk about it in the context of what you already talked about like race and identity. So this this whole notion of the American dream and how it's defined in US to me it's this ideal of shared experiences and equal opportunities and it is an integral part of the American lexicon and almost revered, right? How do you define it and how is it different from how your parents defined it because i see the the whole notion of american dream is, is is it lies at the heart of your story and it's it's part of your title as book title as well i didn't know that i had my own american dream and i didn't know what that american dream was before i started the book because i never thought about it i always thought about the american dream through the lens of my parents who had very traditional ideas of what the american dream was material things uh having a car having a house with a white picket fence kids going to a really nice school kids who spoke perfect english but also like had um a cultural understanding and appreciation for their parents culture those were the things that i think defined my parents american dream i did not know that that I had one too, and it was different from theirs until I started writing the book and unpacking and discovering parts about myself that I had no idea about. And I think the search, I was searching for something my whole life and the search was about fitting in and belonging and feeling like I could just be myself in this country. You're told that your whole life. You come to America, you can be whoever you want, you can do whatever you want. you're told that but you i didn't believe and understand the power of those words until i truly went through the process of feeling like those words meant something to me i did not know that you can say like you you're an american because you belong here but i was alienated my whole life i didn't feel like i fit in with other people of color because i was mixed with three different cultures i didn't feel like i belonged to my filipino identity because i looked too arab or my arab identity because i looked too filipino even my religions and that kind of peace and discovery and acceptance had to come from within and being in in america and allowing that acceptance to to come forth because we live in this country that was something that i had to discover myself and once i discovered that i felt like i had arrived and and that's such an important point and i've seen that throughout your book by the way your book is amazing you talk about you know struggles kids of immigrants have to go through and and i've spoken to quite a few first gen kids and i see this common thread about what you're talking about is wanting to fit in which is basically to me euphemism for wanting to be white it seems to me that being white is somehow perceived as this gold standard for success and i see that throughout your book as well initial years teenage years you were trying to do that too do you think america has become more inclusive and kids are moving away from from that obsession of you know wanting to be white in in those early years of learning absolutely i really thought 
you know, it's interesting hearing it coming from, you know, replaying back that theme that like how sad it was that I thought that to be American um, meant you had to be white. I think things are changing big time. And I was most confronted with that fact only a, a last year. I We had this intern uh, who was Filipino come to NPR where I work and he reached out to some Filipino colleagues asking to just, he wanted to be around a familiar face. Uh, he wanted to have... Uh, uh, some kaibigans, which in Tagalog means friends, and Filipino friends. And it never had occurred to me in my whole career, working in, in, in the workplace for over a decade, to reach out to my fellow Filipino colleagues for a little sense of home. But he felt that this 21-year-old had felt that it was important enough to him, his culture was important enough to him, for him to find those Filipino friends at the workplace too. He wanted to be Filipino at work. This was a new concept to me. And from that, we started a lunch club for Filipino Americans at NPR, which is still still around. Every month we meet and we have a potluck and we celebrate what it means to be Filipino and also professionals. And we talk about our professional struggles, but we've made a space for our community. And I think that that drive and will has come about because there's been this proliferation of, of representation in the mainstream media. You know, there was a time when I looked at Netflix for the and, and there was like, I think, a Hassan Minaj show, an Ali Wong special and like, sorry, I forgot his name. I can't believe it. Aziz Ansari playing at the top of the of the screen. And I just could not believe it. I, I, I that was last year and I was my breath was taken away. I, I Finally, I saw some people who are my age, who grew up in this country, who are now sharing their stories. The immigrants who moved here in the 1980s, they're having children, and the children have come of age, and now we are telling our stories. Which is so impressive and so fascinating for me because I am hoping that my kids will have those role models to look up to. Um, and talking about culture and culture at home, now you must have struggled with two different cultures, right? And you talk about some of the similarities, but there are many differences as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and what tension that created for you? And I know you spent most of your time with your mom after your parents' divorce. Because of that, do you gravitate more towards that side of your culture than, than the, the Egyptian side? Yes, I definitely feel like I gravitate more um, to my Filipino culture than my Egyptian side. But my brother and my other brother actually recently moved here from Egypt. So it's been amazing to be able to like reconnect and relearn my culture through them. Um, my Arab side, you know, um, lots of cooking Egyptian food at home now and like smoking shisha at, a, at an Arab cafe, drinking mint tea, listening to Arab music, watching old Arab films, making a lot of Egyptian jokes. Um, it's been it's been a pleasure. And uh it's never too late to reconnect with your heritage, I think. I think that for me, I, I've only been baby woke um, in my in caring about my ethnicity in the past couple of years since writing the book, actually, or since 2016, since um, the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we saw a lot of in, in the media and the news and politics. So I think that that is something that I've recently reconnected to. Um, on your question about the differences between the two cultures, they are so, so different. Like... Unbelievably so. Just as different, I'm sure, as Pakistani culture and American culture, you know, like night and day. Um, Filipinos are a matriarchal society, whereas, you know, Arabs are a patriarchal society. Islam and, and Catholicism are, are like oil and water, just totally different concepts. Like 
Catholics believe in the Holy Trinity and Muslims only believe in one God. And I think that that was because we were dealing here with heaven and hell, that was terribly frightening to to um you know eat pork with my mom at home and then go to my go to the mosque on Friday with my dad and and you know be told that you know the jinn is always watching you so no all your sins he's keeping track they're keeping track and I was so freaked out about the jinn when I was eating pork you know the jinn yeah yeah and it's it's interesting you you bring up all of that and it is in your book um I went and I as I was reading that I was thinking about how I talk to my kids and and for me it's it's my husband is from Pakistan too so it's very different from us and yet we we disagree on so many things and we still have our own idea of how kids should be raised and especially um the point about you know eating pork now now in Islam it's like strictly forbidden but in a way it also shows you the beauty of you know bringing two cultures and two religions together and i think that's the richness of what you experienced i'm sure initially i'm sure growing up it must have been struggle at time but then it's it's to me it's beautiful as well at the same time yeah i i think eventually like i th- i think it's beautiful now like in retrospect it's lovely but at the time it was so confusing i'm sure yeah so uh, malika talking about your book it's a graphic memoir uh, which makes it so fascinating something like i'm sure my kids would love to read and something that i enjoyed reading as well why did you decide to narrate your story through interactive elements I wanted people to play with me and enter my world and what better way to do that by giving them something to do. So when when I I want you to just as I manipulated my own style to fit in with different different groups in college, I wanted you to to do the same, like decide what I wear. Um be in my shoes, interact with me, engage with me, play with me, enter my world. That's what I wanted. And I also think I like the cinematic quality of graphic memoirs. Graphic memoirs are not a format just for children. Graphic memoirs that are targeted and very serious and and acclaimed that are on very heavy topics from um you know the uh it, like um I'm sure you've heard of Persepolis which is set in Iran and Mouse which is about uh dealing with Holocaust guilt. Um so it's a it's a very strong format and i think it's um a beautiful way to to tell a story that allows people adults and children alike to have some um deep visual elements and decide the story read between the lines that's what i love about it and it was very engaging when i was reading it as you said the, the graphics of it it was just engaging and i even without reading i could just relate to what you were saying and i think that was uh, very powerful and then you introduced these different cultural references like from food to language and you i don't know if that was a conscious effort but you tried to ease reader into it and in that context you talk a lot about food now to me food is such an important part of any culture and i think it also brings communities together is that the reason you focused on food so much i actually it's interesting that you mentioned food i i tried very hard not to talk about food that much but you know food oh. is like the the most dominant 
it, it comes through for sure. Food, food is the most dominant expression of culture. You know, it's easily shared. Um, it, it's something that we do every day, preparing food. It's something we talk about every day. So that, of course, was shining through. But I had a wonderful editor. Her name is Kat Chow. She um, is writing her own memoir, and she is um, part of NPR's Code Switch team, which talks about race and identity. She challenged me to express culture outside of food and, and, and think about how it manifests itself. And from there, I realized that that food is just one part of many different ways that my culture has touched me from, from the values to the way that I see the world to the choices that I make as a person. But definitely food, yes. Like, I, I, there's a lot of it in there, um, but I really didn't want to use it so much as a device, as a shortcut of, of expressing culture. Moving on to your... Um food zine, Runcible Spoon, food zine. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, how did you come up with that idea? And what is that all about? Well, I've been making um, little magazines since I was 14 years old. Um, they're called zines. And it's a it's a subculture that's that's rooted in, in punk music and, uh, <clears throat> and activism. And um, I had always made zines since I was a kid. I've made zines on many different topics. When I was younger, I made it on punk when I was in college, I made it on music generally. And then when I became an adult, I was interested in food then. So I, I made the zine about food, uh, the Runcible Spoon. So um, then, I, you know, when I got a little older, I was like, you know, I don't want to make food zines anymore. What I'm interested in doing is memoir. So I started making little mini zines, which you can see on my Instagram, um, that are sort of like short memoirs or short life truths. So yeah, this is an art format that's been with me my whole life. And um and uh, the Runcible Spoon is just one of many, many zines that I've made throughout my life. Talking about food, is there a favorite restaurant you have, like um, uh, an Egyptian or Arab restaurant and a Filipino restaurant in D.C. that you go to and that's your favorite, favorite place to go and eat food? You know, I do, actually. It's very, very silly to say. It's a place that I've been going since I was an intern in Washington uh, when I was 22. I'm 33 now, so for more than 10 years. Uh, the menu has not changed. I don't even think they've cleaned the place in that whole year, redesigned the place. It's um, it's a Moroccan cafe that sells shisha and some Moroccan foods uh, on the corner of a street in Adams Morgan. And it's got this lovely outdoor patio. And there you can order mint tea with fresh mint. You can play cards. You can sit in the patio. You can watch the people passing by. And for me, that place in Washington feels the most like Egypt. Uh, it, you know, just the, the vibe. It's the whole, the whole element of being able to smoke my little hookah and watch the people going by. It's, it's a very beautiful place for me. And um, it's a meeting point that I've used several times in my career, in my life, in my career, with my friends. And um, I think it captures the ethos of my Arabic culture very well, which is why I like it. How often do you go back to Egypt to visit your dad, Malika? Like, I know I was reading again in your book, you used to go every summer. Has that changed? Well, I'm sure you know this in your own life as a, as a Pakistani-American, but um, as you become older, you start working and it's very hard to sneak in time here and there to go for long chunks of time. Um, you know, I used to spend like a, two months in Egypt every summer and now it's like, if I have two extra weeks every two years, like I'll, I'll go. And it's interesting you said that because I go to Pakistan 
every two years. And it's been like that, I don't know for how long. And it's like, I and I always think about it and I'm like, you know, I should go more often. And it never happens. Somehow we we still go every two years. And, and initially we used to go for like longer periods of time, like a month or even more. Now we just go for two weeks and, and it's a hectic trip. It's, it's a long flight. Um, it's no, it's no fun flying there. I, I wish I could use some other way of, you know, if, if I could be transported there some other way, I would, I would love that. So, and in terms of your other work, you work on innovation in developing world. Um, what are some of your takeaways or what, what are some of the things that you have uncovered or unraveled, like specifically in terms of humanitarian aid? Well, um, I was always inspired to write about these topics because, um, actually, it's because I visited Egypt so much. I remember that, you know, traveling to a, a developing country, you really, really, really see the difference between life in the home home country and life in America. And yeah. it really makes you examine the choices that your parents made for you. Even when you think that your life sucks in, in the U.S. and you're, I remember like um, complaining to my mom because I didn't, I wanted diesel jeans, which were like $150. And like, they, that was really cool at the time when I was like a teenager. And then finally wearing my stupid de- diesel jeans in Egypt, where we had like a maid who was 12 years old. And it like, it really puts in perspective for people like what matters. And I think my interest in global development has and poverty has always been rooted in seeing the realities of, of life in the developing world and um, inspired me to explore and unpack like what I could and what I witnessed there. Um, I also, you know, like high birth rate, like I, we had a Bawab, which is a, a person, a porter, like they're, they're like, if you live in an apartment building, there's somebody who lives downstairs and they run all your errands for you. Like they buy you tomatoes or they buy you beans or, and bread and stuff like that. Or they take your dry cleaning to the dry cleaner. And he had seven children and I just couldn't believe it. And they weren't going to school and they were helping and doing work. And like, I just wanted to know how a world like that could exist. Yeah. And, and that's true for most of the developing world. What you're describing, um, I it's very similar to what I saw in Pakistan growing up and I grew up in Pakistan and and there are different social classes and it is unfortunate how much income disparity exists in the developing world. And what you're saying makes so much sense in terms of even when my kids go back to Pakistan, sometimes they are shocked because for me, I grew up with that. So I think I am somehow not as sensitive to it as my kids are because when they go and they see that income disparity and now when I look back and when I go I I, I think I notice it a lot more than when I was growing up there and I think that's again because of having that awareness about um, income disparity and how we have different social structures and which need to change Talking about, you know, your culture and um, talking about how you grew up in um, a biracial household in America, you, you've had so many experiences, Malika. So from that point of view, could you define America for us in, in a word or a sentence? Um, how do you see America? That's a great question. How do I see America? I see America as a beautiful place where... 
anyone can come here and live the life the life that they want to live and um you know it's true it really is true and i think that unfortunately that beauty is like really not reflected in in the way that and in, in, in the way that america seems these days like it seems like a divisive place but there are so many gorgeous stories of of success and inner peace and love and harmony and um i think that that type of nuance and positivity i wish that they were more expressed in in the way people see immigrants before we end our interview can you tell my listeners where they can find your book if if they wanted to order it yeah um you can literally buy the book anywhere books uh, sellers are sold um but i would highly suggest that you go to the coolest independent bookshop in your city and buy the book there don't buy it on amazon support your local bookshop um and yeah Thank you so much Malika for coming on my pod. This was this was great and thank you everyone for taking the time out to listen. Um you can give us feedback if you like what you hear please share. Uh we have a GoFundMe as I've already talked about that. Um details are on our website and social media. Until next time when we come with another inspiring story and in the meantime stay connected. <laughs>